Chariot Solutions Business Podcast, Episode 3, Evaluation of Open Source Software with Joel Confino of Chariot Solutions. In Part 1, we discuss licensing issues. Hello and welcome to the show. My guest today is Joel Confino. He's recently defined an open source software evaluation model using a set of nine criteria that we're going to go through on this and a second podcast coming up in a couple days. We begin by discussing Joel's motivations in writing up the evaluation process. We also talk about the nine major criteria. From there, in this episode, we discuss in detail various licensing issues for open source software, including the styles of licenses and some of the pitfalls you might run into. In our next podcast in the series, we'll discuss the other eight criteria. On to the interview. I'm joined today by Joel Confino, uh, one of our fine consultants at Chariot and someone I've known for probably way too long. Yes. Hi, Joel. <laughs> Hi, Ken. So we're here to talk about uh, selecting software for your project, specifically open source project software, correct? Yes. And um, open source evaluation model is really what we're talking about here. So, you know, um, how do businesses decide to choose a particular open source project uh, for inclusion in their their portfolio? Uh, now, you started this whole process off. I know that people come to you. You're one of the, the, the more natural people at Chariot that uh, end up having discussions with the CIOs and the, and the VPs about um, licensing open source projects, how to run a project, that kind of thing. So uh, as part of your master's thesis, correct, you, you put together this criteria? Yes. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit just at a high level about what, what it is. Sure. So the basic problem is that while uh, all organizations evaluate software all the time, mm-hmm. um, there's never or very often organizations just use an, an ad hoc process. So uh, we need a solution for X. Okay, we're just going to kind of troll around on the Internet. We'll find uh, something that seems like it's popular. We'll bring it in. We'll sort of play around with it. You know, try to get an idea whether it meets our needs, or and then um, you know we'll we'll decide to use it or not, or maybe we have a really pretty robust evaluation, but then when we go to evaluate software the next time, uh, often that gets lost. So the, there isn't uh, something that's consistently used yeah. exactly. Some sort of repeatable methodology to evaluate software, where even though there's always going to be a high degree of subjectivity to it. We'd at least like to get something where if you evaluate, did an evaluation and I did an evaluation, they would seem similar, right? Because then maybe there would be value in, for instance, um, you know, some sort of ratings. Like right now, if you look at ratings uh, sites for different software, I mean, who knows what methodology they use? So it's kind of a, just a general problem in software, which is how do I – what is good software? And that's such a kind of an abstract – even though you think, oh, that's pretty easy. When you go to define it, it's a little more difficult. Right, yeah. right. So um, – so, so you have a set of criteria that you put together. So at a high level, what are those? It's nine criteria, right? Right. Why don't we so, talk through those just briefly, to, and we'll go into each one in depth. Sure. Talk about the process. But let's just start with what, what they are. Yes. So so basically, and, and just to take even one step back before I talk about the criteria, sure. talk about like sort of how I derive these. Um, there are several open source software evaluation models already in existence. Uh, and so you may have heard of some of these, but none of them are – particularly widely used, at least in, in what I could find. There's a Capgemini open source uh, maturity model, which is kind of, you know, in, in some cases the, the most popular one. Okay. Uh, there's a Navica open source ma- maturity model, which is kind of a take on the Capgemini. Um, there's this QSOS model that, that is pretty popular. There's a business readiness rating, BRR model, that people may have heard of. 
So there are several, at least four, pretty popular or pretty well thought out models. Um, there's other people who have written on the topic. But when I looked at all these models, I didn't think that they included all the criteria that I thought was important just based on my experience and based uh, somewhat on research. Um, you know, looking at these different models, some of them obviously were more in-depth in one area and some were in more depth in another. So I tried to create something that was, while not entirely unique, was kind of a synthesis of all these and also included um, at least one area that I thought none of them addressed well that was um, – important for open source. So that's kind of the history. There are some models. So the, the, the take on it is there's some models out there. They are not particularly widely used, although they're, they're not bad if you read them. But when I, you know, in the 13 years I've done consulting, I never heard of a single company use any of them. So I've gone to companies, they've done evaluations. So this is, you know, obviously very anecdotal evidence. But, you know, they, they're... But you're working in consulting in open source, therefore... <laughs> right. Yeah. So, it's, so these are the clients. These are the people who would use it. Um, you know they don't use it, and and I don't know exactly why, but um, but but that's the bottom line. They still do these ad hoc evaluations and spreadsheets, th and they come up with criteria for that right. evaluation. Exactly. Which, I mean, in some cases, I guess it makes sense if you're doing a reporting engine. You know, okay, so what do we have to support? We have to support Oracle, and we have to support you know store procedures and blah 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 blah. Who does that, right? Yes. So I guess that's one one axis of some of these decisions. Exactly. Right? I think historically, everybody, a lot of people, you know, obviously features, features is what you look at, and features is obvious because that's what you need. But there are these other accesses that maybe – or these other metrics that we can talk about that I think are perhaps often overlooked but still very significant in, in, your, um, you know, in your evaluation. So to be fair, features is one of these criteria. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. One of the nine. Mm -hmm. so, so we can definitely quickly review uh, what the nine criteria that, that I felt were important uh, were. Uh, so – the first one was um, – oh, let me just actually look at my cheat sheet list because believe it or not, <laughs> after working on this for a year, I still don't have them uh, memorized. Well, you can't commit it to memory for an interview. Yes, Quick. that's right. Believe me, I can't even do the intros and outros of my <laughs> podcast without full reports. So, so the, it isn't as easy as it looks out there. The first criteria is licensing. Open source licensing is a fairly confusing topic and uh, you know we'll try to break it down. But, um, you know, that's, that's definitely it. A second criteria is code quality, which is something that, you know, uh, I felt was missing from all the other evaluation models that I thought. So very important. Um, but how do you actually define code quality? And that's not an easy question in and of itself. What is good software versus bad software? I tried to take a stab at what I thought would be um, a quickly measurable uh, way to come about code quality. Uh, because as a, a little bit of a sidetrack, one of the – the things that I wanted to make sure with this evaluation model is that it's quick to implement. So if you want to do an evaluation, you don't have, you know, perhaps um, six months to go do this evaluation model. So if you have an evaluation model that's like burdensome, people aren't going to use it, right? Right. Like so you, anything else. Yeah. So you have to be able to essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like <corporate evaluation. laughs> exactly. You have to be able to distill it down. So even though code quality, you know, you could you could go on and on and on. I tried to cut to the chase essentially and come up with a few key indicators that would uh, that would be representative of code quality. Uh, project velocity is another one. Is this project dead? Is this project growing? Um, that's obviously very important. Uh, pedigree, uh, which we'll talk about, is who is the author or organization who is sponsoring this software? You know, Apache, for instance, has you know, a good reputation for producing you know pretty good software. So um, you could say that something from Apache has a certain pedigree and has a certain level of trust that you would build into it 
versus you know something that has an unknown pedigree. Uh, the community is another metric uh, that you want to gauge um, when you're doing open source, especially open source. Um, you know the the size of the community, the vibrancy, the uh, basically, am I going to get my questions answered? Um, sort of metric is important. Uh, market penetration is another metric we'll look at. You want to know are, are a lot of people using this, and and you know, classic or common example might be the Spring framework is used all over the place. So you know, a lot of people are using it, so you can you can get some confidence level that. It's not going to die quickly. That you'll be able to get support, you know, and that um, that it will probably continue to grow. Documentation quality is one that's often overlooked. Um, are we actually going to be able to figure out what this thing does? Uh, and support. If you uh, there's there's different kinds of support. There's free support via message boards. There's there's paid support. But um, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that because that's another one that's often overlooked. Uh, we're going to look at. You know these different open source products, and if you just went on features, you might say, "Well, X product has the best features." Well, guess what? If you looked at some of these other accesses, you might see, "Well, X project hasn't been updated since 2004." Yeah, the, no uh, one knows yeah, yeah. you know, the author has decided to get out of programming, um, you know, <laughs> and uh, all of the you know documentation is in French. So unless you speak French, you are out of luck. <laughs> I think I know that project. Right, yes. <laughs> and then finally, features. Which would be the other one. And features, right, to round it out. Features, which is basically the one that everyone starts with, but is in all intents and purposes, you know, one, well, very important criteria, you know, not the sole one. So I guess even if you didn't have, you know, you have a paper you put this into, uh, and certainly someone could search it and find it and pay $30 for the paper, but even if you wanted to do something on your own with these criteria, I guess it's more figuring out a good ranking system for what level of importance there are for these features and a, and a way of evaluating those features and just repeatedly, religiously use those features to help, you know, these uh, um, criteria and that weighting system to look at things so you have something repeatable. Absolutely. It, it really is about the, the repeatableness of it and about documenting, you know, these these essentially nine criteria in a, in a short uh, format that you can easily apply to multiple candidate software, and then you can come up with some sort of scoring system. And as you mentioned, you know it, the weighting of these different factors is very much specific on your organization because support, uh, for instance, one that's maybe often overlooked for some organizations is critical. They must yeah. have commercial support, and for some organizations, they could care less because they're they're going to look at the source code and make uh, updates or support themselves. You know, they they don't they really don't care. So, um, so definitely these criteria, uh, while important, vary in importance. Uh, another one is licensing, uh, which is extremely important to some organizations. And some organizations is not at all maybe because they're not paying attention. Right. When a lawyer knocks on the door. But, Wait a second. I have to open source my software. Right, we'll get to that. Yeah. Right. But uh, so, yeah. so definitely. But the, the idea is that, right, this, this is based on a, a research paper, but that is completely – um, you know, not important for this discussion. These nine criteria can be applied, and they're also just playing a good way to understand the 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 attributes of open source software because it really is different than closed source software. Because you can get at the source code, because uh, the communities tend to be vibrant online communities. There's just quite a bit more of these criteria that you probably would have trouble coming up with for some closed, you know, source software. So there's kind of a just a way to get a handle on what's actually important with open source and how does it actually differ from closed source. Okay, that's great. 
So why don't we dive in? Let's let's start off with licensing because mm-hmm. I think the biggest question people have in open source, if you if you talk to a company just getting started doing open source development, they've decided the you know the developers, the IT staff, the CIO perhaps has decided you know what to to have a competitive advantage. We feel we have to go into the open source realm, get out of our closed source licenses for things, and then they look and go. Now, this is a lot harder than it looks because my legal department's saying, no, I'm not allowed to use this license or that license. So can we break it down into a couple categories? I mean, I know there's a lot of licenses. You know, I think I, we corresponded a couple times on some licenses for some projects that we're interested in, like Neo4j and some others. Um, and so there's a bunch of derivatives, but there's some basic tenets, right, for different types of open source licensing models. Absolutely. And, of course, I have to give the standard disclaimer, I am not a lawyer, so please do not, uh, you know, hold me to that but i've done a considerable amount of research in this and there are basically two main flavors of licenses there's a bsd style which is a berkeley software distribution or one of the original open source license style and these are permissive licenses uh, so if we talk about bsd style licenses which uh, probably one of the most popular ones would be the apache license mm-hmm. The main purpose behind that is, uh, or one of the main, basically the gist of it is that you're able to use the software for any purpose, including uh, redistributing, uh, including taking it, modifying it, redistributing your changes. And you have very few restrictions. Uh, Basically, the only restriction is that you can't pretend to be the author and that you can't sue the author. (laughs) Basically, Mm -hmm. leave the author alone and do whatever (laughs) you want with his stuff. Right. So that license... um, Obviously, um, if you're a consumer of that license, that license is sort of a green light that you that you pretty much can can do whatever you want with this, and you don't have to worry about it. Um, so, if you're an author, which we're not really getting into, but you know you have the issue of um, someone could take your work, could modify your work, and could sell it, and could make millions while you're you know off of your work. Right. It's just something for you to consider. But from a business standpoint, or from an organization standpoint, or a consumer standpoint. I think that BSD-style Apache kind of licenses are very friendly. Uh, they, they place very few restrictions on you, and you can pretty confidently uh, use them. Mm-hmm. So then then things start to get more complicated. <laughs> <So>, then <laughs> lawyers so, get involved. Yes. Well, so, so we have GPL-style licenses or GNU Public License, and we'll call these copyleft licenses, and we'll explain a little bit about that. The GPL uh, was created by the, the Free Software Foundation for the GNU Project. It's right. A great idea, uh, and the idea is that um, if I give you open source software, that you are able to use it as long as you make your software open source. This so is the viral concept of open source, right? It is, and we'll get into like that copy that left. Way, but, yeah. No, it is. It is. So the idea is wonderful, which is that you know we have an open source community, and you know, and and just the the class the example that I gave previously. If if I work hard to produce something, some wonderful library for the community. And I release it under, um, you know, and somebody uses it. It could very well be my intention as the author that they don't take it, modify it to their own purposes, and then sell it commercially closed source. It kind of defeats the whole purpose. Well, I was probably not trying to fund their project for free. I was trying to create a community of free software, hence the Free Software Foundation. Right. So, I mean, if you look at like Linux, for example, a lot of the low-level libraries to build the commands, I would assume that you'd want that to be viral because you wouldn't want Linux suddenly becoming so closed that you always have to buy it, right? Uh, but that eventually has a ceiling, right? I mean, right. if you're writing Java software, presumably it runs on standard lib in C, 
So somehow they got away with a licensing that let you get that far away from it, and then your works don't have to be viral. So there are different kind of confusing. It is confusing, and we'll definitely talk about the different flavors of the GPL style licenses, which are essentially how the mechanism works for that particular for that viral part that you mm-hmm. mentioned. Okay. But but the idea is is positive. I think right. I really do. I think the implementation, unfortunately, is messy, and the reason is because um, it, it's difficult to write a license that covers software because uh, that's changing constantly. So, yeah. so here's, here's an example. So we'll start – well, actually, let's talk about the, the concept of copyleft, mm-hmm. which the, the uh, Free Software Foundation, I think, uh, basically coined. And it essentially is what you mentioned, which is also called uh, – so I guess the positive connotation word would be copyleft, yes. <laughs> which means that if you <laughs> use my software and you – the important thing is – it, it, you redistribute my software, right. then, and you you change it and redistribute it, or you just redistribute it. Your software must also be uh, under the same license. Must also be open, not just open source. I'm, uh, and this is where again my non lawyerly skills. I'm not exactly sure whether uh, it's not just open source. I'm pretty sure it has to be supported under a uh, released under a copyleft license as well. Okay, and each license has sort of specifics about that, but basically, um, you know, also called viral. So you have the um, – and, and different licenses under the GPL are more viral than others. So let's talk about those. So the original GPL um, basically says that if you use my software and you modify it and you redistribute those modifications, then you also must take my license. So it's not just using. It's using and modifying. It's using and redistributing is the key, I guess, oh, okay. is really the key. Okay. So if I take a GPL software library and I'm a business and I use it internally and I change it completely and I never redistribute those changes, then I am not required to uh, under the provisions of copyleft to open source my software. That's a I common see. misconception. Hmm. People are like, well how how does this work? It's only if I took that software, I read I modified it, or I guess just plain redistributed it as like say for instance a library within my software. So say I had a and desktop sold, software. Sold that software to somebody. Or just redistributed it at all. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think selling Even or not selling really just matter. giving it yeah. away. I have to uh, open source my software that belongs to that. I see. So that's kind of the the basic GPL. So the key there is again the redistribution of it. That's kind of an antiquated concept in the in the day and age of web, well, right? I was just so say because you have a, let's say you have a web application running that uses totally some different copyleft <laughs> library, right? right? And therein kind of lies the rub, right? So in the day and age of desktop software, this makes a lot of sense. I yeah. give you my desktop software. It contains GPL code from someone else. I must GPL my desktop software. Mm-hmm. So along comes the web or along comes networking in general, right? And so you have uh, the case of MySQL, which uses a GPL license. With MySQL is a, is a database that you can run, open source software database that you can run inside your application. It uses the GPL. You're allowed to access that within a corporation, and you don't have to GPL all the code that uses it because mm-hmm. it's across a network. You're not redistributing MySQL. You're redistributing the output of a network connection to MySQL, mm-hmm. and there is a difference, and the license doesn't cover that. Now, the founders of the GPL decided, well, we need to update the license to, in, to accommodate network software because everything's network now. And really, the intention of the GPL, if you look at it, is show me yours, and I'll show you mine. You know, like the open source, the freeness of software. So now you have a new license, a new variant on that, the AGPL, and that is, for instance, the license that uh, the very cool Neo4j software is mm-hmm. licensed under. The AGPL essentially closes the network loophole and says that if you would connect to an AGPL server or you would use AGPL software in your website where users are connecting via network, you're not actually redistributing it. 
you also must release your software uh, as a AGPR, as an open source copyleft sort of um, thing. So, so we get into this more the intent of the authors. And then there's yet a third variant on it, which has been around for a while, called the lesser GPL. Mm. And there's probably way more than three, but the lesser GPL is... Our three weapons are four, <laughs> yeah, four or five. Yeah. Yeah. The, the LGPL, the idea behind that is if I, have a, if I want to create a library and I do want people to use it and I do want them to redistribute it, but the one thing I don't want them to do is fork it, is basically copy it, change it, and sell it. Okay, then you can use the LGPL. So it's only viral if I actually make modifications and redistribute it in a modified form. If I keep it intact and I just I have you know a wonderful spell checker library and I just want everybody to include the spell checker, I can use the LGPL, which will um, allow people to use it. So from a business standpoint, if we look at these you know three somewhat confusing options, <laughs> using uh, most businesses that I've seen uh, just run from the GPL entirely, uh -huh. because as you can see, even in this discussion, it's a little complicated. Sure. But to parse it down, if you you use an LGPL library and you don't modify it. Which you know many times you would not. You would just download this really cool spell checker, and you just want to use it on your website all over the place or in your desktop software. You are under no obligation to open source your software. You're allowed to use it. You just can't modify it and redistribute your modifications. If you use a GPL license like uh, MySQL, and you and uh, you have a, a website, you are still under no obligation to um, to. Uh, redistribute your software. If you have desktop software where you're actually physically redistributing the uh, the binaries to the user, then you are under an obligation. But if you're in a web scenario, which many businesses are, you're not because there's no network clause essentially in GPL. Right. However, if you're using a GPL software <laughs> like um, Neo4j, which is, again, very awesome, but uh, if you're using that, Neo4j is a classic example of uh, or not a classic, a good example. It will be a classic at some point. Then, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, a, a good example of dual licensing. So if you're using Neo4j and you are an open source project, you are welcome to use the AGPL version of Neo4j. And that means that you are required, if you connected AO4j at all, to uh, make your software also open source with a, with a viral license. However, if you're a business and you say, well, I really can't do that because there's a lot of trade secrets in there, you can purchase a commercial license from Neo4j and then you are under no obligation to, to open source. So that's kind of a, a model that you may see and one thing to keep in mind. Software can be dual licensed. If you're the author, you can do whatever you want. Right. So you can make an open source version that's viral and you can make a commercial version that allows people to use it closed source but also allows you to be compensated. Spring Source is another example and I guess JBoss and a bunch of the other ones will do that dual licensing, right? They're looking for large companies that need maintenance and support and may have some really good developer foo and may want to actually modify things. And they're willing to basically offer that for pay. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And so that's a great model, actually, um, if you are you know, writing open source software. Yeah. This is a way that you can get paid and you can still contribute to the community. Mm -hmm. um, and AGPL protects you from forking of the project, right. basically. Right. But lets people who are going to use it for open source purposes benefit without really having to pay. 
Exactly. So it's so, a hybrid, really. It really is. So, uh, but the, I will say that um, to be safe as a business, uh, you know, I would still probably recommend sticking with the BSD style, the Apache, yeah. mm-hmm. because you don't have uh, one one perhaps issue. And again, I'm not speaking as a lawyer, but just as a practitioner, is that these things haven't been tested in court. There are no big trial balloons about uh, GPL, LGPL. I mean, a few companies have been sued in a few minor cases, but there isn't the big. And this is this is exactly what. Big companies fear. So the, so we'll just say uh, large bank, okay? Just mm-hmm. pick anyone. This is fictional. Ed's so, bank of money. Right. Ed's bank of money <laughs> uses GPL software in a manner that they feel is completely compliant, like I described. They're using GPL software inside of a website. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not redistributing anything. And so under their interpretation of the GPL, even though that's actually probably not the spirit of it, the letter of it is they are safe. Right. But all of a sudden, um, the GPL licensed libraries author sues them and says now you owe me who knows what because you've used my software and you have an open source so either either right. comply by open sourcing all of edbank's software which obviously they can't do mm-hmm. or pay me a bazillion dollars so this is the exact scenario that scares corporations well, yeah, it's never gone up to the supreme court for example yeah, or any sort of legislation I don't believe that anything has really i mean a few people have tried to sue over this i've seen but there i don't think there is any real test and right. then that's the united states what about courts around mm-hmm. the world yeah what if you're an international company and you're right. posting or serving software to anywhere right yeah. now we have, what is the eu what does the eu think about this and i don't know so so you've got a lot of um you know different complications because of this very good concept, which is we want software to be free, but the implications are a little sticky. Yes. So so my recommendation is if you're a business to either use LGPL and BSD style licenses only, or be very careful with the GPL or APL, AGPL, or even better yet, approach the author of a GPL or AGPL licensed software and offer to purchase a commercial license. Yes. If you have a, a you know. That's a really good point. Most it, people wouldn't think of that. Right. You can do that. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, you know, so so for instance, there may be a library that you want to use and that library is is worth a lot of money to your company. And there's sites that you can look at that basically are based on lines of code, estimate how much it would have cost. But right. let's just say that this library, your estimate is it would have cost you $5 million to develop this library. Well, you know, you could approach the author who, if they wrote it in their spare time, you know, may accept something a lot less than $5 million <laughs> yeah. for a, you know, you know, yeah. right, right. So, you know, for, you know, $10,000 or something for a, a yearly commercial license or something, anything. Yeah. But the idea is that you have flexibility and that uh, as a business, it's, you know, it's, financially sound business to license, you know, to pay these authors for their work, I think in the end, it's cheaper than doing it yourself. Yeah. And so, so that's an avenue that I think it would be uh, businesses would behoove them is to embrace open source, not because it's the right thing to do, quote unquote, I'm using my air quotes around right, but because it's the financially expedient thing to do. Right. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, that, that's a good discussion of licensing. Um, are there any other Kind of funky uh, licenses out there in the wild. Those are pretty much the, the two main there, variants. Well, those are the two main variants. There are a lot of licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I mean, anything there's, new emerging that, that seems to be bubbling up. Or there's hybrids. Mozilla's license is sort of a hybrid of BSB, BSD and GPL, in which you know I um, and and but it has some copy left parts to it. Really, the bottom line is that if you're an organization and you are um, using you know, a variety of open source products. Um, and 
once you start using one, you t- you tend to get a lot of them yeah. uh, because they all kind of use each other as the developers a, as bring this up and that up and this up and that up. Yeah. The one thorny issue is that a lot of this software is not clearly licensed. So what I mean by that is if you download a jar, um, you may look through and the authors. Uh, Here's the thing. A lot of open source software is developed by techies, not necessarily by lawyers, lawyers. right, who don't have a clue what they're doing (laughs) when it comes to legal stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I can can speak truth on that one. So I've done some large-scale evaluations of um, companies' open source libraries trying to determine compliance to licenses. And part of the problem is some jars that you'll have, you know, a Java archive uh, full of Java files – it's not clear what the license is because sometimes the author will have multiple licenses accidentally in the through cut and paste errors. Oh, sure. So yeah. you'll look at like half the files say the one thing code. in the source code oh. and half the files says something else. And then there's a little file called license.txt which says yet another thing. So what is the actual license? There's no standard really to say in this jar file or in this archive that you download off the internet, here's what the license is. The only real way to know is to track down the author and, and to them. email them. Well. You're never going to do that. Is the bottom line, right? <laughs> for okay. like for like 400 jars. No. So it okay. gets it gets so so we get into this thing of um, yeah. Aren't there what, companies that do this and keep registries of this? Like is it BlackRock? I want to use sort of ish. No? <laughs> yeah, sort of. I think, um, but but in practice, I haven't seen. It's a good you know, if you can get it, I guess. Yeah, I, I know that Sonatype, the organization that builds Maven, has talked about producing a repository where they will claim to be able to accurately identify the license so that you can trust it. A directory, but this, yeah. But this whole pedigree issue is very important. So if you look at open source project Lyft uh, by Dave Polly. Right, the uh, Scala web framework. It is. And one thing that Dave has been highly aware of, and um, possibly because his wife is a lawyer, is that he is very careful about the pedigree of, or about the, the lineage of the software that is in Lyft. He can tell you... Um, you know, he's very careful about basically licensing, and he's also very careful that uh, yet another issue, but it's not really related to licensing, but it is related to being careful about what gets in that. He's very careful that authors can't submit work to his project and then later claim that um, somehow they have rights to his project. So that, right. so the ideas are truly like – hijacking. So, that, yeah, so that he yeah. is really the – person who's in control of all of it. So if you submit a patch to him, he will rewrite your patch in his own thoughts and he will say, thank you for the idea, but none of your code actually made it into my project. So that's, uh, we're we'll probably actually blurring into pedigree, which we'll touch okay. on. It's kind of a tangent, but it's a very useful one, I think, because it ties right in. It, it's yeah. the same idea of in open source software, a weakness is that people are concentrating on technology and tend to ignore the legal issues. And yeah. the legal issues are licensing and um, IP ownership. ownership. IP ownership, exactly. Yes. And those two things property. really yeah. kind of tie together. So, so here's yet another reason why a company like Apache or an organization like Apache can be important because you can sort of trust that um, you know you know what you're getting when you get an Apache project. Um, that you know what the licenses is, that the license of it and its dependencies are going to be consistent. Or uh, Spring Source is another company that will also uh, indemnify companies saying that if you use Spring, Spring and you pay them for support, um, that all of the other things that come along for the ride with Spring, which is probably some 60-odd jars, yeah. are not going to violate any sort of license. Mm-hmm. So licensing, again, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, To summarize, it, it's not too complicated if you um, – if you don't want to get into the GPL world, you know, if you want to stay in the, the BSD, the Apache licenses, basically the, the free-for-all licenses um, can, can probably simplify your life as step one. And, and just be cognizant when you use other projects of, uh, that the licensing does actually matter and you do have to pay attention to it. And so – And look it, at the um, closed licensing angle if you're a company that 
you know, wants to use a library, but it may be LGPL or exactly. or something else, AGPL style. I mean, there's, there's an angle for you there. Exactly. And if you ignore this, kind of ignore it at your own peril. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks again to Joel for coming on to the show and discussing open source licensing with us. We'll have the second part of the interview in a couple of days, and that'll discuss the other eight criteria. We'll provide resource links on the show notes pages for more details. Speaking of the show notes page, you can get to it at techcast.chariotsolutions.com. You can also find out what we're doing by watching our Twitter feed. We're at TechCast, all one word. Want to leave us feedback? Go ahead and tweet to that particular uh, username. Or you can leave us email at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. You can find out more about Chariot services, including consulting and education, by visiting our website at www.chariotsolutions.com. Our themes are free theme number three and free theme number four from podcastthemes.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Rimple.